This evening, the uh, topic will be uh, Samaditi, which I translate as uh, complete vision. You might be more familiar with right view. Now, the, um, I'm going to use one of the texts we have in the handout. I don't know which number it is. It's uh, the one that's entitled To Kachanagota. To Kachanagota. Six. Six. As I think I already mentioned, um, the collection of texts that we have in this handout um, is also the one in the appendix of my book, After Buddhism. But it represents uh, a collection of uh, discourses that I feel speak with a similar voice. I find them entirely congruent. Some are better known, others are rather obscure, but what I find myself um, trying to develop an ear for in reading the early uh, discourses is those that speak with this kind of uh, voice that seems somehow not so, it doesn't seem to be pushing a particular doctrine, it's rather texts that afford a certain perspective on life, a sensibility that would give rise to a, an, an ethic. This text of the, the Kachanagota Sutta, the discourse to Kachanagota, um, is quite well known. It's famous in Buddhist history because it is the only text that is cited by name by the Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna in his key work, the, the Mula Madhyama Kakarika, the verses on the middle way. Uh, I published a book some years ago called Verses from the Center, and uh, that includes this uh, text that cites the Kachanagota Sutta as uh, a source for what Nagarjuna calls uh, emptiness. But curiously, the word emptiness doesn't appear in this, in this short text. And what the text is about is um, a man called Kachanagota, about whom we know very, well, virtually nothing. And he comes to the Buddha and he inquires as to what is the nature of samaditi, of complete vision. What do you mean when you say complete vision? And this is the Buddha's reply. By and large, Kachana, this world relies on the duality of it is and it is not. But one who sees the arising of the world as it happens, with complete understanding, has no sense of it is not about the world. And one who sees the ceasing of the world, as it happens, with complete understanding, has no sense of it is about the world. Again, this is not necessarily an easy text to understand and it bears repeated uh, reading and reflection but it points I think to something very fundamental about uh, the Buddha's vision. I think this text already makes it quite clear that the Buddha is not actually interested in in, in questions of being or not being. Uh, he's not suggesting that complete vision is to understand things as they really are. Um, it's actually a vision 
that seems suspicious of the very uh, primary categories of language itself. Uh, this is, um, we're familiar perhaps with Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. Something either is A or it is not A. No other alternative. Whereas here, the Buddha is suggesting that we would be better off if we want to arrive at a complete vision of life to suspend our preoccupation with the categories of it is, ati, and it is not, nati. We might read, we could perhaps say being and non being. But the words ati and nati are third person singular, it is, it is not. And what seems to be the point here is that um, in a certain sense, these categories, however fundamental they might be in how we, we speak and think, they're incapable of pinning down or capturing the fluid, processual, um, unfolding and disappearing of life itself. They uh, appear to um, pin down something as either being something or not being something, and they, I think, are embedded in our perceptual uh, senses uh, in a non-overt uh, non, uh, way. Uh, we just tend to think of ourselves as, you know, I am, uh, and you are, and he is. Um, and in saying these, uh, using this language, there seems already to be um, a kind of a bias or a, a preconception in there that this thing, this person, this self, uh, is somehow circumscribed in such a way that uh, it is cut off from the fluid unfolding of life, and uh, exists somehow in and of itself. And likewise, when something ceases to exist or is non-existent, uh, you know, it, it simply isn't there at all. And this seems kind of self-evident, and of course it's perfectly functional and useful. Uh, we wouldn't be able to be having this talk or understanding it if we didn't have the verb to be in operation in many of its sentences. But when we're trying to, as it were, understand what is the nature of reality, and basically the Buddha's, I think this text is basically showing that this isn't what the Buddha's interested in at all. But rather he's exposing how these categories of being and not being actually uh, hinder um, a, a primary sensor, sensual uh, experience of the unfolding of life, the unfolding, the, we might say the arising, the passing away, but again those categories too uh, impose borders and constraints that are actually alien to the sheer, um, the sheer stuff of experience itself. One who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete understanding, has no sense of it is not about the world. In other words, when we uh, are witness to, let's say, the arising of a thought, or the arising of an emotion, or the passing of a cloud, um, the category it is not um, simply can't apply. And when we see the ceasing of the world, the falling away of a thought, the dying down of an emotion, the, uh, the evaporation of a cloud, um, the notion that it is, is no longer appropriate or viable uh, in making sense of what's going on. Perhaps another way to look at this, which is the way we find in uh, later Madhyamaka philosophy, is in the um, analysis of this example much 
loved by Buddhist philosophers, the seed and the sprout. Conceptually, a seed is one thing and a sprout is another. When the seed exists, there is no sprout. When the sprout exists, there is no seed. But if we were to pay close attention to the process by which a seed becomes a sprout, if we were to sit in front of it and just watch it carefully or do some time-lapse photography, perhaps that might be a more convenient way of doing this exercise. There is not a point at which we can say, at this point, the seed stops and the sprout begins. At this point, the sprout is there, the seed is not. The, 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 the way life actually unfolds um, is seamless, uh, without borders, without categorical dividing lines that separate the seed as one thing and the sprout as another. Um, and it, it's, I think it's very um, helpful to, 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 to pay attention to life in this way. However useful these categories, how unavoidable these categories are, they simply cannot map or capture the, um, uh, the actual unfolding of natural processes as they occur. There are no lines in nature. There are only lines in thought. So the notion of being or not being is or is not um, fail somehow to uh, capture what is, in a sense, um, utterly ineffable. It's beyond language. It's, uh, it cannot be captured by concepts. And in this way, I feel the Buddha is somehow suggesting that we open our minds, our hearts, our senses, um, and simply allow ourselves to witness the, uh, the mysterious unfolding of life itself. To me, this brings us into a certain intimacy uh, with, the, with the flux of experience itself. And I do feel that when we practice uh, the cultivation of attention, of mindfulness, um, that more and more we become almost um, entranced, in a way, uh, by the sheer magic of experience itself. Um, we find ourselves, once we let go of our more uh, conceptual, categorical ways of thinking, the chattering in our mind that's constantly telling us what this is and what that is, um, we open ourselves simply to this encounter that is, um, is somehow seamless. The same applies also to, uh, to, let's say, the relationship between hearing and the sound that we hear. We hear, let's say, the song of a bird, and there is an organ of hearing that does the hearing. Yet when we just open ourselves almost phenomenologically to that uh, experience and ask ourselves, where does the sound of the bird stop and my hearing of it begin? Can we distinguish the hearing from the sound? Can we draw a line and say, that's where the bird sound stops and this is the bit which is my hearing of it? Conceptually, we take it for granted that there are two separate things. The tweet, 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 tweet of the bird, or my voice, if you like, and my hearing of it. But look more carefully into that, and you won't find any point at which you can differentiate between the two. A more simple example, perhaps, is uh, the relationship between your bottom and the cushion. There's your bottom... There's the cushion. They're obviously two different things, right? Right? <laughs> experientially, though, it's one blurry bottom-sitting-on-cushion experience, hyphenated, as the phenomenologists 
are so fond of doing. It's quite weird, actually, when you start looking into this. Uh, there are no dividing lines. Experience is weirdly uh, sort of one big continuous blur. But it's not a blur that's dulling. It's a blur that somehow allows us to feel um, utterly uh, integral and uh, uh, interwoven into the absolute fabric of life itself. And this, I feel, is what begins to break down our sense of separation, our sense of being cut off from what is out there. And I think the ramifications of this are not just um, interesting from a from a sort of first-person meditator's point of view, but also they reinforce the sense that we are not uh, in any way separate or cut off from the, the web of life itself. And this, I think, has consequences in how we relate to the environment, uh, how we relate to other people, that we're all kind of weirdly fused together so I feel that this begins to have ethical implications. We're not separate. And the text continues, by and large, Kachana, this world is bound to its prejudices and habits. But such a one, namely the one with complete vision, does not get caught up in the habits fixations, prejudices, or biases of the mind. He is not fixated on myself as a separate, cut-off entity. He does not doubt that when something is occurring, it is occurring. And when it has come to an end, it has come to an end. In other words, one is aware of the, of the unfolding and the unraveling of experience, but he, he or she. Remember, I've said he. I, the the um, we can we can regender this language without the Pali and the Sanskrit don't specify the gender of a pro. They don't have pronouns, so we don't. Ha you know, we can quite uh, just as well say she. So I'm sorry that I, I once again am bound to the prejudices and habits of the world. And then it concludes, her knowledge is independent of others. Now that's interesting. Um, what he's doing, in other words, he's, he's showing that this, the, this primary uh, conviction of is and is not is what under, underpins the prejudices, the habits, the fixations, and the biases of the mind. It's by parsing and carving up experience according to these categories that we then get caught up in the oppositional ways of thinking that so characterize human existence and are the, um, are the necessary foundation for all human conflict. When we begin to uh, open ourselves to experience in this way, um, we become independent of others. In other words, we see things for ourselves in this way. It's not any longer a kind of belief that we have adopted because we believe in the authority of the Buddha or some other teacher or philosopher. And this expression, becoming independent of others, aparapachaya, is also um, a phrase that's used to describe the person who has entered the stream of the Eightfold Path. So remember, complete vision is the first step of the Eightfold Path. That what's being described here is the sensibility that we um, experience and that we open ourselves up to once greed, hatred, and specifically in this instance, delusion fall away. Delusion, therefore, or moha, has to do with uh, this carving up of experience into separate, independently existent bits and pieces, monads. So the, 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 the letting go of 
confusion is actually uh, those moments when we are able to let go of this uh, uh, deeply seated habit or conceptual structure of is, is not, this, that, subject, object, etc. But that is not the, the end of the process. Nagarjuna uh, calls that nirvana. Uh, I would likewise call it nirvana. It's not called nirvana here, but tomorrow we'll see how this fits into uh, that idea as well. But this is the moment in which the path begins. This is the opening to a way of life. Uh, this is the vision that leads to the possibility of an integrated life. And it's in these respects, the Buddha says, that such a person's vision is complete. And I think complete here works rather well. Uh, there's something holistic, we might say, in such a vision. Uh, something that's not uh, a partial or uh, biased. It's complete in that sense. And this, I feel, is far closer to what the spirit of the text seems to be suggesting than the word right, a right view. This is a complete view, a holistic view, an integrated view of life itself. And then the text concludes, everything is, is the first dead end. Everything is not, is the second dead end. The Tathagata reveals the Dharma from a center or a middle that avoids both dead ends. Dead ends is often translated as extremes, the two extremes. Um, but I don't think that's really quite right. The word is anta in Pali and Sanskrit. Anta means limit. Um, and it's also associated with Mara. Mara is called the Antaka. Ka is the one who imposes limits. So it's not extremes. That's really something different. And a limit, um, particularly when it's understood as a function of Mara, which means death, is a dead end. This is a... This is the translation of I.B. Horner. She uses dead end rather than extreme. Because a path, what the opposite of a path is a dead end. It's an unter. So a middle way, or a, a way even, but a middle way, a way, a path, is an unfolding of life um, focused on a goal, on a purpose, on a value, uh, that actually takes us somewhere, as opposed to a great deal of our activities in life that actually turn out to be dead ends. They don't actually get us anywhere. Greed, hatred, egoism are actually dead ends. They might seem promising. Hey, I can get that thing. But once I've got it, enjoyed it, I'm back quite shortly after as a rule, again experiencing the lack, which I try to fill by getting something else. It's a dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. So the, the concepts of being and non-being are dead ends. They don't get anywhere. Now, of course, there's, I think, quite some philosophical depth here. Um, this is not uh, that easy to understand. Let me give you another example. And this is a text, um, I think it's in the Samyutta Nikaya. And it's a famous dialogue, or a fairly famous dialogue, between the Buddha and a man called Vachagota. Vachagota appears quite a lot in the canon. He's not a Buddhist. He's someone who's you know, philosophically very curious. He's a spiritual seeker, we might say. And we often find him asking the Buddha difficult questions. And one of these dialogues, he comes to the Buddha and he asks, um, is there a self? And again, it's the same word as in the Kachanagota Sutta. Is there a self? The word is there is ati. Is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. 
And so Vachagota says, is there not a self? Again, same word as in the Kachanagota, Nati, is there not a self? And the Buddha remains silent. And then Vachagota stands up and goes away. Presumably saying, well, great. Um, <laughs> thanks. And then Ananda turns to the Buddha and says, uh, why didn't you tell him something? Why didn't you answer his question? And the Buddha replies, if I had said there is a self, that would have led him, Vachagota, into the dead end, anta, the dead end of eternalism. In other words, believing the self is, is in some deep mystical sense. If I had said to Vachagota, there is not a self, this would have led him into the dead end of nihilism. So this is and is not are, the, uh, are what underpins uh, the, what are called the extremes of eternalism and nihilism. That the, ultimately there is nothing, there is no value, it's all just a big meaningless void ultimately, or there is something permanent and enduring and eternal that doesn't change, that animates the universe or is the nature of God or whatever it might be. So the Buddha is suggesting a way of life um, that is not premised on either the affirmation or the negation of, um, in this case, the self. Now, uh, this is somewhat at odds with um, uh, what many Buddhists uh, uh, believe, namely that there is no self. You know, it's the self and no self. So it came up in one of your discussion groups this afternoon. Um, there is no self. There are the aggregates, the transient phenomena of body and mind, but there is no self. That stands in direct contradiction to this text. The Buddhist belief that there is no self. Anatta is often translated as no self. But frankly, that's a nihilistic view. According to this... If you read the Anatalakana Sutta, the second discourse the Buddha is supposed to have given, uh, it's about uh, not-self, anatta. Anatta is now translated by most translators that, like John and Akinchino and Bhikkhu Bodhi, I don't know about Bhikkhu Bodhi actually, but certainly um, um, I think Analayo uses not-self. Not-self is actually correct. Uh, because... Um, uh, in the, uh, the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self, um, all the Buddha says is that the body is not yourself, the feelings, the perceptions, the inclinations, consciousness, these are not you, not-self. Nowhere does he say there is no self at all. He's just saying you are not, that your experience is not you. That doesn't imply that you don't exist. What it means is that you are not your body, you are not your feelings, not you are blah, blah. The self um, is simply um, the way we uh, understand uh, and, uh, you know, it's the way we understand who I am as opposed to who you are. Uh, it's meaningless to say that there's, there's, there is no one. Uh, but again, the Buddha is not actually interested in actually defining self. Because as soon as you get into the definition business, you're making either affirmations or negations. He doesn't get into this at all. He recognizes that uh, attachment to self is a serious cause of a lot of pro problems. Uh, he certainly wouldn't advocate that. But on the other hand... <coughs> Um, he's not making any, any ontological claims about the nature of the self. He's saying it neither is nor is not. He's silent about its status. And when he um, speaks just in ordinary language, um, he uses the word utter self in a totally non-problematic way. Um, one of the verse I've already mentioned where, the, where he says that um, just as a farmer irrigates a field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, 
just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, that's also in your handout, um, so does the wise person tame the self. So in other words, the self is compared to a field that can be irrigated, the parts of an arrow that can be put together, a block of wood that can be shaped. Clearly here, the self is understood as a work in progress, uh, not as either something that is or is not. It's a process, as we would say today. Um, and there's another famous passage, which is not in the handout, where he says, um, a person um, is a farmer, a king, a carpenter, uh, a merchant, not because of what they are, but because of what they do. In other words, your actions, your deeds, forge and form and create who you are. There's no, there's no fixed essence, no me. But through our acts, we shape and create ourselves like a carpenter shapes a piece of wood uh, or a fletcher an arrow. So the Buddha is not interested, therefore, in what the self or the person is. He's interested in what the self or the person can do. And so this, I think, is a very clear affirmation of a pragmatism rather than an ontology. And the emphasis, once again, comes very clearly back to practice. The, the fourfold task, for example, is basically a framework in which persons uh, are given something to do, something to do that enables them to flourish as individuals. The idea of the person being a barren field that can be irrigated with water is a beautiful, explicit image of human flourishing. Uh, a, a crop is able to grow and bear fruit. A person is able to grow and bear fruit. Now I'm going to jump into another tradition here and um, go back to... Uh, I'm going to read you a text that um, is a fragment from from the teachings of the um, Greek philosopher Pyrrho. I've mentioned Pyrrho, I think, um, in I, my first talk. Um, the very first contacts that Europeans had with Buddhism, or at least with India, um, was through the, um, through the philosophers such as Democritus and Pyrrho, both of whom are said to have studied in India. Pyrrho accompanied Alexander as one of his entourage. He was also from the tradition of Democritus. Very little has survived of his teaching, just a few fragments. And the most famous of these fragments is called the Aristocles fragment, which is quoted by the church father Eusebius, third uh, century AD. The original work is lost, it's already a quote of a text which is quoted from another text and attributed, in fact, to Pyrrho's disciple, Timon. Now, let me just read you the passage and I think you'll soon see what, how it resonates with what we've just uh, looked at. According to Timon, uh, Pyrrho says that whoever wants to be happy should consider three questions. How are things by nature? What attitude should we have towards them? And what will result from having this attitude? According to Timon, Pyrrho declared that things are equally indifferent, unmeasurable, and undecidable. Therefore, neither are sensations nor our opinions tell us truths or falsehoods. Therefore, we should not put the slightest trust 
in them, but be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering, saying about each thing that it no more is than is not, or both, or both is and is not, or neither is or is not. The result for those who adopt this attitude, says Timon, will first be speechlessness and then untroubledness. Hmm. Now the parallels here with the Kachanagata Sutta I don't really need to point out. It's, it's strikingly the same ballpark, almost the same language actually. Um, and so a number of scholars have uh, maintained that this is actually drawn from an encounter with Buddhist ideas. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. But it is, in fact, a lot more complicated than that, as these things tend to be. Because I think such a, a way of thinking was al already, uh, in some respects, um, uh, developing in Greece too, Greece and Asia Minor. But I don't want to get down that particular track. But um, uh, I find this passage very... Uh, this is not my translation. This is uh, Sedley and Long's translation, who are two of the f two current um, scholars of uh, particularly Hellenistic philosophy. But um, clearly it's about avoiding the extremes of is, is not, both is and is not, neither is and is not, which is called the tetralemma. Uh, Nagarjuna uses this. We find it also in the Pali Canon. Um, and it's all very much about um, realizing that things are indifferent, which in hyphen different, that's how they translate it. In other words, no is seamless, if you wish, unmeasurable, you cannot measure them, you cannot draw lines, undecidable, you cannot pin them down. And as a result, um, we should not put our slightest trust in our uh, sensations or our opinions, but be without judgment, without preference, and unwavering. And the result of this is speechlessness. In other words, we kind of get into a sense of just mind-stopping. <laughs> Can't say anything. Language is somehow revealed uh, to be inadequate to capture the sublimity of what's occurring. And then it leads to untroubledness, ataraxia. And that's very similar, frankly, to nirvana. Nirvana is peace. Ataraxia is often translated as peace. Peace in the sense that uh, any kind of disturbance or, or, or uh, grasping of the mind comes to rest. Now, one thing that's not mentioned either in Nagarjuna or in Piro is the, um, it's suggested in Piro, it's not, not Nagarjuna, the Buddha or Piro, um, is that what would be another example of a state of mind that has suspended the duality of it is and it is not. Pyrrho hints at it with this word speechlessness. I think we can take that further and consider it to be a sense of wonder uh, or a deep kind of puzzlement and questioning so that um, by suspending these categories, is and is not, this and that, and so on, uh, it doesn't mean the mind just becomes a neutral blank, but it opens us uh, to the possibility of wonder. The reason I think the world appears often flat, opaque, dull, boring, is because we are so embedded in our convictions that you know, I am here, this separate being who knows what's going on, and this is that, and that is that, 
Again, we don't think that consciously. And I feel that it's important to read these passages not as descriptions of our, our you know, our, uh, uh, our conscious uh, attitudes towards things. It has more to do with deeply unconscious uh, patterns of perception and, uh, and, and uh, seeing the world that are rooted in these kinds of differentiations and distinctions. And emotionally, the consequence of that is the world seems somehow um, lackluster and dull and flat and not really particularly interesting. We call this boredom, uh, really. I think it's feeling bored, 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 meaning a sense of meaninglessness. So the, if that is correct, then by suspending these uh, views and opinions, these positions, we open ourselves up to the possibility of wonder. Remember, Socrates says that philosophy begins in wonder. And if you think what it's like to ask a question, any question, let's say, where is Boston? If you don't know where Boston is, you genuinely haven't got a clue, then you cannot say that Boston is in the east or it's not in the west, it's in the south, it's not in the north. The categories of it is, it is not, are not possible in a questioning mind. A mind that questions is a mind that is in a state of suspension of judgment, which is called epoche in Greek. And the later philosophers in the school of Pyrrho, the skeptics, uh, practiced the cultivation of epoche, suspension of judgment. The phenomenologists in our century uh, appropriated that language too. And this is the practice of skepticism. Again, skepticism has got a very bad, it's considered to be a sort of, you know, a skeptic is somebody who just won't believe anything. And it's considered a rather dismissive attitude. But skepsis actually means inquiry, questioning, investigation. The skeptics questioned. They weren't content to rest with fixed ideas of things being this or being that or not being, they question what is going on? Who am I? What's all this about? And as soon as you question, is and is not, yes and no are suspended. So this speechlessness is, I feel, the opening to wonder or an opening to a sense of awe or a sense of mystery in the world. I feel this finds its most, uh, its clearest articulation in uh, the Chan or Zen tradition. And I'm going to give you a, a koan um, that uh, is the foundation of the practice that uh, I trained in in Korea, in the monastery. It's a dialogue between uh, two monks, uh, Hui Neng, who's the sixth patriarch of Chan, and Huai Zhang, who's a young monk from the north who comes to study with uh, Hui Neng. And this is going on the beginning of the, beginning of the eighth century in China. Um, Hui Zhang was living on Mount Song, which is north of the Yangtze, he heard that there was this teacher of meditation called Hui Neng, who lived right down south, not far actually from Hong Kong, uh, down in Guangzhou. And uh, so he walked all the way down, quite probably two or three hundred miles, if not more, to the monastery of Nan Hua Su, where Hui Neng lived. And he was, uh, in, he was brought to the Zen master's quarters, introduced to uh, Hui Neng, and Hui Neng said, where have you come from? And Hui Zhang replied, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng asked, but what is this thing? How did it get here? 
at which point Huai Zhang was speechless. The text goes on and says, he spent eight years in the monastery. And then at the end of eight years, he came back to Huaineng and uh, said, I understand. And Huaineng said, what is it? And Huaizhang replied, to say it is like something misses the point. Now this, I think, is very um, much in the same... Uh, uh, it's in the same kind of uh, uh, territory as the Buddha's uh, teaching to Kachanagota, uh, Piro's um, uh, fragment. But here, the emphasis is very much on the actual asking of a question in... Um, a contemplative and in a fairly um, uh, persistent and possibly radical way. The story effectively breaks into two parts. Hui Zhang arrives at the monastery. Hui Neng starts by asking him the rather, you know, the rather banal um, social uh, introductory question, where have you come from? And he and Hui Zhang gives the standard answer, I've come from Mount Song. But then what Hui Nang does is he somehow changes the rules of the game. And instead of, you know, going into a further sort of social chit-chat, uh, he says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? He turns Hui Zhang's... Uh, uh, experience into a very fundamental question about the nature of Huai Zhang's existence. You know, who are you, really? And of course, Huai Zhang is, is shocked and simply can't reply. He doesn't know. So this questioning, uh, both as it's shown here, but also as how it's taught in, in the Zen monasteries, uh, in Korea, this is the main koan that is used, is both valorizing the questioning, what is this, but at the same time, implicitly, it is valuing what is sometimes called the don't know mind. If you ask, what is this, genuinely, and you remain in that state of open-minded questioning and astonishment, you are tacitly admitting you do not know what this is. So this um, suspension of is and is not is also um, uh, a confession of ignorance. I don't know what this is. It's convenient to say, oh, this is X or this is Y, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't know what's going on. This life, this world, this moment uh, is deeply weird. And yet we, 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 we sort of make it manageable by locking it into categories, concepts, beliefs, views. And we can then run with the conceit that we kind of know what's going on. But as Hui Nang reveals to Hui Zhang, actually, you don't have a clue what's going on. You don't know who the hell you are or where you've come from. And so you take that as your object, uh, as your practice of meditation. And the way that that works uh, in uh, Chan practice today is that you sit in meditation and you still your mind and then you pose the question, what is this? You don't repeat it like a mantra. That's not much help. Might get you a bit more concentrated. But you allow yourself to experience what they call the sensation of great doubt. And this is a sensation that you feel in your, in your bones, in your body. It's a very somatic experience. You don't just question with your mind you question with your body-mind. You allow this 
questioning to reverberate uh, in your skin and bones. And so you can drop the words, what is this? And you enter into a state of deep, puzzled astonishment. And you don't try to somehow come up with the right answer. But you allow yourself to rest in this uh, deep questioning and just be open and wait uh, for whatever response might arise. And in the case of Huai Zhang, uh, the response was to say it's like something misses the point. In other words, you know, what is this cannot be answered by saying it is X or it is Y. Any such statement will miss the point. So we started out by looking at um, right view, um, and we end up with um, this quality of open-ended questioning and puzzlement and uh, astonishment uh, in which we have suspended the categories of yes and no, it is and is not. And although I've gone outside the Pali tradition here, um, I feel very much that this follows quite naturally from the Kachanagota Sutta. I think it's very similar to the origins of Western skepticism, and it finds its formal practical application in the uh, practices of Chan or Son or Zen. So that's all I'm going to say tonight. Um, we still have half an hour or so. I'd be happy to um, continue this as a discussion. But let me switch the machine off first. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.